Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Sir Roger Penrose, recorded at Exeter Phoenix, May 2019. This is meant to be a talk about the universe and cosmology and all that sort of thing. First of all, if I can get this gadget working, that's the universe. When I say it's the universe, it's a space-time picture, time going up, and you have to think of space as sections, and the sections through it represent three-dimensional space. You might wonder what all the frilly stuff at the back is. That's because I don't want to prejudice the issue as to whether the universe is spatially closed up. It might just join up at the back, or it might keep going. These are pictures due to the Dutch, Dutch artist M.C. Escher of three different kinds of geometry. These are the three possible uniform geometries. The one at the top left is flat space. That's Euclidean space. The one on the top right is the picture of what's a sphere. And you can imagine the universe might be one more dimension sphere, what they call a hypersphere. And uh, that's a possibility. Or this one is another possibility where it might be negative curvature. So those are the three basic possibilities. As far as observations are concerned, it might be any one of the three. It, they're pretty close to being Euclidean, but maybe it's that way, maybe it's that way. I want to show the one at the bottom for another reason, which I'll come to shortly. But just look, have a look at the picture. That represents a particular kind of geometry called hyperbolic geometry. Now, I want to say something about the bottom part. You see, in all the cosmology books that you see, whether they're popular or whether they are uh, technical books, will describe something called inflation. And inflation would be tucked in right at the bottom point here. Now, you might not see it there. Two reasons you might not see it. One is it's too, so small that you wouldn't actually see in this picture. The other is that I don't believe it. But I want to show you the conventional picture here. Let's have a good look at the tiny little point at the bottom. That's where inflation would be. So what you have is the Big Bang at the bottom. You see, look at the top of the picture. What you seem to see is that the universe expands a bit like that, and then it starts to do what's called an exponential expansion. And people, well, two groups got the Nobel Prize for that a few years ago. And because they'd noticed that when you look at very, very distant exploding stars, supernovae, you find that they seem to be accelerating away from us. And lots of people found this a great surprise, and they call it the mysterious dark energy. Now, I was a little bit puzzled by why people were so surprised, because in 1917, Einstein introduced this term lambda for the wrong reason. You see, he wanted a universe that was static, and in order to do that, he had to introduce this term lambda to his equations. It's the smallest modification, basically, that you could do his, to his original equations without wrecking them. So I think he was aware you could make that modification, but he didn't see the need for it until wanting to make a static universe, which was a mistake because very shortly afterwards, Hubble demonstrated convincingly that the universe is actually expanding. So Einstein is said to have considered his introduction of the lambda term as his greatest blunder. But it turns out his greatest blunder was actually true. And uh, I would go to a conference, and they would say, maybe at the next meeting, we'll know the value of the cosmological constant. And of course, they didn't, and they went to the next meeting, 
And then finally, when they find this lambda, they call it the mysterious dark energy. Well, let's, let's uh, talk more about this. Why do people think that inflation is a good idea? One of the reasons is that, as we'll come to later, the universe seems to be very, very uniform. And the argument was, well, why was it so uniform? And one of the claims is that, well, if you have this inflationary stage, then it expands by so much, you don't get the impression of how much it goes on and on and on, expands by an absolutely huge amount. And so any little irregularities, so the argument goes, will smooth the whole thing out. That's, I consider, to be a wrong reason for inflation. And when I first heard about inflation, I thought, well, that won't last a week. Just shows how wrong my judgment is, because it's been about 20 years, or I can't remember how long. Certainly, it's, it's very well part of cosmology that the inflation takes place. Why do I think it's not a good reason to say that it smooths the universe out? Well, let me give you the sort of argument that I've been making. Imagine the universe is collapsing. So Einstein's equations work just as well if you turn time around, go backwards in time, the equations don't make it, doesn't make any difference. So if they work one way in time, they work the other way. So if they work with the universe the expanding way around, and you imagine the universe is collapsing. What happens if you introduce irregularities? Stars could collapse, galaxies could form black holes, the black holes swallow each other up, and you find not a picture like this, you find a picture much more like that. So this is the kind of thing where instead of having a nice clean collapse point, you have one unbelievable mess. The point is it's nothing like the other picture. And that is a solution of the Einstein equations. Whether or not you put the term in called the inflaton field, you can't stop that happening. So that is a much more probable end point to the universe if it's collapsing than this. In fact, you can estimate how much more probable that is than that. And there are ways of doing that estimate. And what you find is that the chance of this in the collapsing universe, as compared to the great mess, is about probability of one part in about 10 to the power, 123 or 124. And that number, that big number, 10 to the 124, that is 24 zeros, that number with that many zeros is the number of zeros here, if you get the feeling. You see, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurdly much more, much more probable that you would see something like that than you would see the smooth collapse that we have in the other picture. So in the other direction, why do we not get that for our Big Bang? And inflation simply hasn't no effect on it at all. If the universe started with the, in, with the most likely probable mess, you wouldn't uh, get anything like the universe we see now. Why was it like that? Okay, now this is to go back to the hyperbolic geometry I told to you before, but this is to explain a kind of geometry uh, that this is represented in. It's called conform conformal geometry, or it's a conformal picture. What do I mean by conformal? You see the angels and devils, as you get near the edge, they get, look as though they're getting tinier and tinier. But if you were one of the angels or the devils, take your pick which, then when you get near the edge, you would think that you were just, I mean, you don't move anyway, but you, if you were one of the ones near the edge or in the middle, you'd be just the same. As far as you're concerned, the edge there is at infinity. So that is the infinity of this geometry represented as a boundary in this very nice kind of conformal picture. Now, when I say a conformal picture, it means that it's squashed down at the edge, but the squashing is the same amount this way as that way in all directions. If you had a, uh, a little circle, then squashing it down, it remains circular and that doesn't become elliptical. And uh, the size, of course, gets changed, but conformal preserves small shapes. It also preserves angles, so the angles on the wings of the devils, if you like, 
would be the same no matter how far you are. So bear in mind that kind of geometry. It's a very beautiful kind of geometry. It's, it sort of goes beyond Euclidean geometry where lengths are important. But if you think of lengths not being important, but the small shapes are important and the angles are important, that's a kind of geometry called conformal geometry. And that's very important to what I want to say here. OK, now what's this picture? The one on the left is just a smaller drawn picture of the entire universe, starting from its Big Bang and going, and forget about inflation. It doesn't matter too much to what I'm saying here, but let's say it wasn't there. As you go up a picture, the universe is expanding and expanding and expanding. And remember the Escher picture, where the infinity is represented as a boundary. And here we, by squashing it down by this conformal, and here you have to, it's for space-time. You've got to squash the time down by the same amount as you squash the space down. And that is what you call conformal. And so the conformal picture gives you a nice fin finite boundary. It's infinity. So infinity is just a nice place here. And then that, there's a nice theorem, too, due to, due to Helmut Friedrich, who is a German mathematical physicist, who uh, worked out that you can have lots and lots of irregularities in the expanding phase, and it doesn't make any difference. You can always do the squashing down. So, so this is a thing that, that's very, very generic. Now here we have the opposite trick. This is a mathematical trick, if you like. It's just a way of representing infinity as a finite place. The opposite mathematical trick is taking the Big Bang and stretching it out. So you're doing, again, conformal. So as you stretch this as much and this as much and the time as much as well, so the stretch is all the way around the same. Uh, you have another conformal boundary. But now, this is something very special. It's very special that you can actually stretch it out to make something smooth. You see, I told you that it could have been a big mess in the beginning, and it was rather nice that my former student and current colleague, Paul Todd, uses, instead of my criterion, a much better one, which is to say that the past is smooth, if you like, and so you could imagine that you could extend the space-time to before the Big Bang. And you see the other trick is you could imagine extending it after the Big Bang. They're just mathematical tricks. But the mathematical trip in the future pretty well always works, no matter what irregularities are happening here, as long as the matter in the universe doesn't have any mass. That's something I'll come to a bit in a minute. But the other end is a very, very special thing. It only, as I said, it's only one part in 10 to the 10 to the 124 or something like that. And so it's a very, very, very special start. The important thing is one of the most fundamental laws of physics, which is called the second law of thermodynamics. Now, it's not a law which is like Newton's laws or Einstein's equations or something which tells you equations for what the universe is doing. It's a much more kind of general statement about the randomness in the universe. And the randomness is measured by this thing called entropy. And the entropy is a measure of randomness. And as time progresses, the second law says that this measure of randomness tends to increase with time. And that's well established. Now, I can say the same thing all over again, but backwards in time. You see, the second law says as you go into the future, as time progresses, the entropy increases. But the same thing is if you go into the past, the entropy decreases. So you go further and further into the past, the universe should be less and less random. Now, what is the earliest thing you can see? The earliest thing you can see, when I say see, it's not seen with eyes, it's seen by radio or microwave detectors. So it's this microwave radiation, which is coming from very, very early universe. It was the very first evidence that the Big Bang really was there. And this radiation is very, very uniform over the whole sky. 
it's a little bit warmer in the direction we're moving. I'm saying that direction, I have no idea which it is in this room, but <laughs> whichever way you happen to be moving, um, you correct for that, and then you find over the whole sky, this microwave radiation is coming to us very, very uniformly to about one part in 100,000. So the variations in temperature are about that. This is another thing which is a little bit more detailed about this rad radiation coming to us. This is a curve, and here we have the uh, frequency going up, so frequency this way, and going up the picture, we have the intensity. So you see there's a very specific relationship between the frequency and the temperature, and this solid curve here is the famous Planck curve. Max Planck explained this curve as a sort of, there's a thing called black body radiation, which follows this very closely, and it was what started quantum mechanics up. But what you see is that the observations, and the observations have these error bars, but the error bars are drawn much bigger than they really are, just so you can see them. They're drawn, expanded out by a factor of 500. So you imagine squashing them down, and so the error bars hug the curve to well within the width of the incline. So you, what you see in this microwave background is something which agrees with Max Planck. Well, what's it telling you? It's telling you maximum entropy state, completely disordered. Well, that's what I tend to call the mammoth in the room. You think of entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder. It's going up in the future. In the past, it's going down and down and down until you can find the earliest place you see anything about it and you find it's at a maximum. You don't have to be an uh, expert in mathematics to see there's something fishy about that. And why aren't people more worried about that? But the point is that it's not a contradiction. People used to say, well, maybe it's because the universe was so small there wasn't much room for much entropy. That's just wrong. What you're looking at here is radiation and matter in a maximum entropy state. So it's randomized as much as it can be. There's something else which is important and not shown in that curve. See, what do you see? you see uniformity over the sky. Now suppose we were thinking about a gas in a box, and so the, the upper line of those three squares, time progressing as you go from left to right, you imagine that there was a gas, you release the gas, and it spreads out over the whole box. And it's very uniform. And that's consistent with the entropy increasing. The uniform state is also characteristic of the maximum entropy state. But suppose we don't have just a lot of molecules running around in the box. Imagine a, an analogous picture, but now we've got a galactic scale box, and we've got a lot of stars running inside that box. But as gravity starts to operate, they tend to clump, and, and you form clusters and those sort of things. And then the maximum entropy, a huge factor, comes when they form black holes. What do we see? We see a uniform distribution over the whole sky. So what it's telling us is, no, the universe is not in the maximum entropy state because we haven't take into consideration the gravity. When you bring gravity in, then you see that uniform distribution is very low entropy in gravity. The gravitational degrees of freedom, they've sort of remained aloof. It takes a little while for them to get involved, and then the entropy in the gravity starts going up. Okay, so let me try for the next picture. I've gone back to what I said before, and uh, at the top we have a very smooth state because the universe has been expanding, 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 and it smooths out, according to Helmut Friedrich's theorem. In the back state, it smooths out. Well, we don't know why. It's just like that. That's what we're given. A universe which is very, very uniform in the gravitational field is not being activated as yet, whereas the other degrees of freedom are at a maximum. It's an imbalance between 
gravity and everything else. And inflation certainly doesn't give you that. This is an absolutely huge puzzle. Um, I mentioned about Paul Todd's characterization of the special state at the beginning. And uh, this picture, to say that you could smooth out both ends, is not outrageous. It more or less explains what we see of the universe both ways. But it's just a mathematical trick. You're not suggesting that there really is any universe beyond the remote future. You're not suggesting there was any universe prior to the Big Bang. But this is where it gets outrageous. This is what I call conformal cyclic cosmology. I put it forward in about 2005, and I used to give talks on that, and I would say, this is my outrageous scheme. <laughs> um, but I had a sort of niggling feeling that, well, I think, I was going to give it about 50% chance of being right. But I tended to think that it's a nice picture. I can go on lecturing about this. Uh, that gives me a nice topic to talk about. Nobody will ever be able to show it that it's wrong or right or whatever. <laughs> but the trouble is I then began to think about well, maybe you could test this observationally. And I've forgotten what's on the next slide, but let me just see what it is. Ah, black holes. Yes, I, I should have talked about this a little before. When we talk about entropy going up and up and up in the future, when we started to understand about black holes, and particularly the, what's called the Bekenstein-Hawking formula for the entropy in a black hole, you see that the entropy in a black hole absolutely swamps everything else. And particularly now, when we see there are absolutely enormous black holes around, the amount of entropy in the universe is utterly dominated by black holes. Nothing else makes any difference by comparison. It's the black holes, and the big ones particularly. That's where all the entropy's gone. So when the universe expands and the entropy goes up, the entropy is concentrated in these black holes. Now, I want to say something about this picture. You see those cones there? What are those cones? They're actually important for describing the geometry. These are what are called light cones or null cones. Space times four dimensions, time is one dimension, three space, and time, imagine, you're going up here. And then you, you see, what's that cone? If there was a flash of light at that point, it would go out along with the speed of light, and here's a spatial picture. Now, you see, I've dropped a dimension here. In the spatial picture, I've actually put all the dimensions in, so you can think of the space, these are different sections through that cone. And each one is a sphere. And as the light moves outwards, you get spheres moving out. So that is just the geometrical picture, as if there was a flash of light there, it would, its history would follow that cone. Now, these cones are sort of potentially there everywhere, whether there's light or not. But they tell you what light would do if there was light. And they're very important because they tell you how particles can move. You see, so a particle doesn't travel faster than light if it's got mass, and so that means that its line always lies within the cones. If it was outside the cones, it would be traveling faster than light, and relativity says you can't do that, whereas light itself propagates along the cones. So that's a, a photon, if you like, zipping along. It's always along the cones. That's the important point. Keep that in mind. Top picture is special relativity when there's no gravity. The bottom picture is when gravity is the thing that's all complicated. Now, that's not quite the whole of the space-time geometry. What's the main thing that's missing? Here we have not just the light cones at the top, that's the light cone, or the top part of it, but you also have something else, which is the rate at which time goes. So I've got some clocks zipping around. Suppose you're sitting at the... Well, you don't have to be sitting there, but this point in the middle, uh, there could be a lot of clocks zipping by at different speeds, and according to relativity, the clock rate is influenced by how fast they're going. And that influence is described by these horizontal or sort of bowl-shaped surfaces, which you see here. The point I want to make is that the cones themselves contain nine numbers 
you have to know, to know sort of where it is, which, where it's pointing, to tell you what the cone is. The tenth number gives you the scale. Now, for the metric, this thing called the metric, which determines Einstein's equations, this thing you write with a G, it's on the left down here, don't worry too much about that, but it encodes not just the cones, that's nine bits of information, but also how crowded those surfaces are. In other words, the time, the rate at which time progresses. So keep those two pictures in mind. There are two different pictures. One is the, just the light cones by themselves, and the other is the light cones with those the surfaces in. Okay, what happens to black holes? Well, they just sit there when they swallow things. That isn't quite all they do, because according to Stephen Hawking, they have a temperature. And it's a very, very low temperature. You've got to think in terms of either the lowest temperature ever made on the Earth or even lower than that. So the radiation coming out of the black hole doesn't do much. Still, it's coming out. And if you wait for a long time, a long, long time, while the universe expands, 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 it gets to what I call the boring era. There's nothing left. Very big black holes and clusters of galaxies will probably swallow, eventually, most of the matter in, in, the, in the cluster of galaxies. So the universe gets colder and colder and colder and colder until the black hole starts to be the hottest thing around. Cold as it is, eventually the universe cools down as it expands, cools down, cools down, until the black holes are the hottest things around. But what happens to the black holes? Well, they eventually evaporate away completely. How long does it take? Well, it depends on how big the hole is, but think in terms of a Google year. Think of one with 100 zeros. That's a long time. But what you really want boredom, wait till it's gone. All the black holes are gone, and that is the really boring era. <laughs> now, you see, I was sitting in my office at home and worrying about this, and I just thought, it's a really pretty sad state for our universe, unending tedium. I mean, I shouldn't use emotional arguments in science, I know, but nevertheless, I think that you get something out of it somewhere. But then I thought, well, okay, it would be pretty boring for us, but what about photons? Photons are main, the main constituent of what's going to be left. And it's very hard to bore a photon. There's two reasons for that. One is probably it doesn't experience anything yet, okay. But the other reason is because here we have a photon dipping along at the bottom. It never even hits the first of these bowl-shaped surfaces. To that photon, the first tick of its clock is at infinity. Creation to infinity is no time at all. So it's got no time to be bored. Well, you see, the point of view I was then having that it's not really so boring. And that was the kind of motivation for this rather wild picture that I have. You see, the fact that the entropy was low in gravity is important for all of us here. You see, why are we around? Well, lots of reasons. But one of the reasons, important reasons, is because the sun is up there. And people say we get energy from the sun. That's not quite right, because although you know, it's warm and warm in the daytime, in the nighttime, the energy all goes back up. We, the sun does not give us energy. The point, key point is, because the sun is much hotter than the background sky, and this is Max Planck's formula, again, I won't worry about details, but it means that the energy carried by the photons from the sun individually is much, much bigger than the energy carried by the photons which go out at night. So to make up the same energy, you need loads and loads of photons. That means loads and loads of degrees of freedom. That means high entropy. So the key point is that the sun gives us the energy in a low entropy form. It was a point made by Erwin Schrödinger, the great quantum me mechanic. We depend upon the temperature imbalance. The key point is that the sun is there at all. And it's there because of gravity. And that's because there's this reservoir of low entropy, uniformly matter, and then it clumps into stars, they get hot. And that is the key point. It's because 
the entropy in the gravity was low. That's why we have all this structure around us. And it's a very, very important point about how the universe began. Somehow, these gravitational degrees of freedom were suppressed in the early universe. Go back to our black hole. Our black hole in our galaxy, the mass is 4 million times that of the sun. We are on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Okay, it'll be a few thousand million years before it gets to us. The galaxies will collide. The black holes won't hit each other, but they'll feel each other up, and they will collide. And then there will be a huge explosion in the form of gravitational radiation. You wouldn't feel a thing, probably, but a tremendous amount of energy will be released. Each, each eon has its big bang to its remote future. Big bang to remote future. Big bang to remote future. Those things are cosmic eons in my terminology. There was a cosmic eon before ours. It would have had black holes running into each other, and they would be in clusters, and they would send signals out, and we might be able to see them. They would form rings in the sky, which there does seem to be evidence for. But as I say, nobody paying any attention. I want to talk about something else. You see, these are two tests, and above these two planes here is us. That's our eon. And this is us looking back at the microwave background. You see, the microwave background, this radiation we're coming from all directions, is not quite the Big Bang. It's a bit later, about 380,000 years. So the Big Bang is the red surface before, and the green surface is the, what we see in the microwave background. Now, the left-hand side, this, this is the new signals. I'm not looking for colliding black holes. I'm looking for the black holes themselves. The black hole evaporates away by Hawking evaporation, and that energy in that black hole is radiated away over the whole of the rest of the history of that eon, the previous eon. Now, remember the Escher picture with the angels and devils. Right up to the edge, everything which happened very late, which is one of the directions will be time, very late in that picture, it's all squashed up into that very little point. So the entire history of that black hole is squashed up into a little tiny point. And so from our point of view, if you think of us up here, this looks like a little teetly point here. The entire energy comes bursting through into our eon. Of, of all that huge cluster of galaxies squashed into a black hole, bursted, bursting through in that point. In conjunction with the Polish group and, and Daniel Ann, who did some analysis, we seem to be seeing, actually, the result of such a, a thing. And I just want to emphasize how clumped this distribution is. It's not uniform over the whole sky. This is telling you, I mean, maybe there's some other explanation, but the explanation I'm giving you, and I haven't seen any other, is that this is a picture of what black holes, were where they were concentrated in the eon prior to ours. Now, you see, how do you know whether a signal is real or not? This, I should say, is a very important graph, which is what's called the power spectrum. If you imagine that the cosmic microwave background sky was a, a balloon or something, you try to vibrate it in different ways, where there's a sort of overall vibration, it's just a way of saying it, is what's mapped in this picture. You see, how do you know something is real or just random or not? So you have to compare it with something. What they do, is they make a fake sky in that it has exactly the same power spectrum. So that the, if it was a balloon, the overall oscillations would be the same as in the real sky. But then all sorts of detailed ways it could behave. And the higher the, the mode is, there are more and more details. And then you randomize within those. So that's, what, that's what's done here. This is the Polish group now I'm talking about. And I was involved now in it. And Daniel Ann, who's a Korean who works in New York, did the analysis. What he looked for were rings. So we see here we have an inner radius, which is supposed to be R, 
an outer radius which is epsilon more than that. And for these particular sizes, what he finds is that the temperature is significantly higher in the middle than on the outside. So it drops as you go out. So what you're seeing is a distribution of temperature, like a little spot like that, warm in the middle and cooler on the outside. And for these various different parameter values, you seem to see a signal. He did it first looking at the Planck data, and he looked at 1,000 fake maps. You see whether the features are in, the, in those um, simulations. And I've got ringed where you see zeros. That means there were none of the fakes uh, saw the feature that's in the real sky. So he did another 9,000 simulations, 10,000 in all. That tells you how unlikely it is as a random effect. The signal can be said is real with 99.98% confidence. So they seem to be there. OK, so the, the, but the key point is that the, you don't see them for bigger than these rings. Now, how big are those rings? Well, the moon is about half a degree in the sky. These things are about four degrees across, so about eight times the moon's diameter. These are spots in the sky of raised temperature. Then another point about them is that the spread, you see, is only it's four degrees across. Why are they only that little amount? If there was inflation, now you see, what does inflation do? It really expands the direction between the red and the blue by a huge amount. And then the spreads would be much, much bigger. So either that or inflation is there, and it's only just at the last moment, which is what people call graceful exit, you would have to have these huge explosions taking place. So if inflation is right, and, the, and the, what I'm saying here is right, and I see the evidence looks pretty strong, it's pretty hard to make sense of it. But if you don't have inflation, and if you've got this model, they should be there. They're really a prediction of the scheme. Anyway, I'll leave you with those thoughts. I still don't, I don't know what people are going to say. new version of the paper is, I believe, now on the archive. So my name is um, Christoph Meisner, Pavel Mirovsky, and Daniel Ann, the other authors. Thank you very much.